This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 6 Chapter 3 Pickwick Papers Part 1 There are those who deny with enthusiasm the existence of God and are happy in a hobby which they call the mistakes of Moses. I have not studied their labors in detail, but it seems the chief mistake of Moses was that he neglected to write the Pentateuch. The lesser errors apparently were not made by Moses, but by another person equally unknown. These controversialists cover the very widest field, and their attacks upon the scripture are very to the point of wildness. They range from the proposition that the unexpurgated Bible is almost as unfit for American girl school as is an unexpurgated Shakespeare. They descend to the proposition that kissing the book is almost as hygienically dangerous as kissing the babies of the poor. The superficial critic might well imagine that there was not one single sentence left of the Hebrew or Christian scripture which this school had not marked with some ingenious and uneducated comment. But there is one passage, at least, upon which they have never pounced, at least to my knowledge and in pointing it out to them, I feel I am, or ought to be, providing material for quite a multitude of Hyde Park orations. I mean that singular arrangement in the mystical account of the creation, by which light is created first, and all the luminous bodies afterward. One could not imagine a process more open to the elephantine logic of the Bible-smasher than this, that the sun should be created after the sunlight, the conception that lies at the back of the phrase is indeed profoundly antagonistic to much of the modern point of view. To many modern people it would sound like saying that foliage existed before the first leaf. It would sound like saying that childhood existed before a baby was born. The idea is, as I have said, alien to most modern thought, and like many other ideas which are alien to most modern thought, it is a very subtle and a very sound idea. Whatever be the meaning of the passage in the actual primeval poem, there is a very real metaphysical meaning in the idea that light existed before the sun and stars. It is not barbaric, it is rather platonic. The idea existed before any of the machinery which made manifest the idea. Justice existed when there was no need of judges, and mercy existed before any man was oppressed. However this may be in the matter of religion and philosophy, it can be said with little exaggeration that this truth is the very key of literature. The whole difference between construction and creation is exactly this, that a thing constructed can only be loved after it is constructed, but a thing created is loved before it exists, as the mother can love the unborn child. In creative art, the essence of a book exists before the book, or even the details or main features of the book. The author enjoys it and lives in it with a kind of prophetic rapture. He wishes to write a comic story before he has thought of a single comic incident. He desires to write a sad story before he has thought of anything sad. 
He knows atmosphere before he knows anything. There is a low, priggish maxim, sometimes uttered by men so frivolous as to take humour seriously, a maxim that a man should not laugh at his own jokes. But the great artist not only laughs at his own jokes, he laughs at his own jokes before he has even made them. In the case of a man really humorous, we can see humour in his eye before he has thought of any amusing words at all. So the creative writer laughs at his comedy before he creates it, and he has tears for his tragedy before he knows what it is. When the symbols and the fulfilling facts do come to him, they come generally in a manner very fragmentary and inverted, almost in irrational glimpses of crises or consummation. The last page comes before the first. Before his romance has begun, he knows it has ended well. He sees the wedding before the wooing. He sees the death before the duel. But most of all, he sees the color and character of the whole story prior to any possible events in it. This is the real argument for art and style, only that the artists and the stylists have not the sense to use it. In one very real sense, style is far more important than either character or narrative, for a man knows what style a book he wants to write when he knows nothing else about it. Pickwick is, in Dickens' career, the mere mass of light before the creation of sun or moon. It is the splendid, shapeless substance of which all his stars were ultimately made. You might split up Pickwick into innumerable novels, as you could split up that primeval light into innumerable solar systems. The Pickwick papers constitute first and foremost a kind of wild promise, a prenatal vision of all the children of Dickens. He had not yet settled down into the plain professional habit of picking out a plot and characters, of attending to one thing at a time, writing a separate, sensible novel and sending it off to his publishers. He is still in the youthful world of the kind of world that he would like to create. He has not yet really settled down what story he will write, but only what sort of story he will write. He tries to tell ten stories all at once. He pours into the pot all the chaotic fancies and crude experiences of his boyhood. He sticks in irrelevant short stories shamelessly as into a scrapbook. He adopts designs and abandons them, begins episodes, and leaves them unfinished. But from the first page to the last there is a nameless and elemental ecstasy, that of the man who is doing the kind of thing he can do. Dickens, like every other honest and effective writer, came at last to some degree of care and self-restraint. He learned how to make his dramatis persona assist his drama. He learned how to write stories which were full of rambling and perversity, but which were stories. But before he wrote a single real story, he had a kind of vision. It was a vision of the Dickens world, a maze of white roads, a map full of fantastic towns, thundering coaches, clamorous market-places, uproarious inns, strange and swaggering figures. That vision was Pickwick. It must be remembered that this is true, even in connection with the man's contemporaneous biography. Apart from anything else about it, Pickwick was his first great chance. It was a big commission given in some sense to an untried man. 
that he might show what he could do. It was, in a strict sense, a sample. And just as a sample of leather can only be a piece of leather, or a sample of coal, a lump of coal, so this book may most properly be regarded as simply a lump of Dickens. He was anxious to show all that was in him. He was more concerned to prove that he could write well than to prove they could write this particular book well. And he did prove this, at any rate. No one ever sent such a sample as the sample of Dickens. His roll of leather blocked up the street, his lump of coal set the Thames on fire. The book originated in the suggestion of a publisher, as many more good books have done than the arrogance of the man of letters is commonly inclined to admit. Very much is said in our time about Apollo and Admetus, and the impossibility of asking genius to work within prescribed limits or assist an alien design. But after all, as a matter of fact, some of the greatest geniuses have done it, from Shakespeare botching up bad comedies and dramatizing bad novels, down to Dickens writing a masterpiece as the mere framework for Mr. Seymour's sketches. Nor is the true explanation irrelevant to the spirit and power of Dickens. Very delicate, slender, and bizarre talents are indeed incapable of being used for an outside purpose, whether of public good or of private gain. But about very great and rich talent there goes a certain disdainful generosity which can turn its hand to anything. Minor poets cannot write to order, but very great poets can write to order. The larger the man's mind, the wider his scope of vision. The more likely it will be that anything suggested to him will seem significant and promising. The more he has a grasp of everything, the more ready he will be to write anything. It is very hard, if that is the question, to throw a brick at a man and ask him to write an epic. But the more he is a great man, the more able he will be to write about the brick. It is very unjust, if that is all, to point out to the hoarding of Coleman's mustard and demand a flood of philosophical eloquence. But the greater the man is, the more likely he will be to give it to you. So it was proved, not for the first time, in this great experiment of the early employment of Dickens. Messrs. Chapman and Hall came to him with a scheme for a string of sporting stories to serve as the context, and one might almost say the excuse for a string of sketches by Seymour, the sporting artist. Dickens made some modifications in the plan, but he adopted its main feature, and its main feature was Mr. Winkle. To think of what Mr. Winkle might have been in the hands of a dull farceur, and then to think of what he is, is to experience the feeling that Dickens made a man out of rags and refuse. Dickens was to work splendidly and successfully in many fields, and to send forth many brilliant books and brave figures. He was destined to have the applause of continents like a statesman, and to dictate to his publishers like a despot. But perhaps he never worked again so supremely well as here, where he worked in chains. It may well be questioned whether his one hack book is not his masterpiece. End of section 6, chapter 3, part 1.